Good morning, church. Uh, why don't y'all turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 if y'all, as y'all are standing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're going to use the black Bibles that are right in the seat in front of you, it's on page uh, 1013. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, the words will be here uh, on the screen. Uh, once again, I would just like to say if it is your first time with us, uh, we are honored uh, to have you here. and We hope that you hear words uh, of both grace and truth and God's love as we go through a text uh, that may be hard to hear at the beginning. I want us just to use this day as an exercise to trust God's word and wait for him to finish before we make a judgment on the goodness of the things that we hear. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start off uh, and read, and uh, it says this. This is Paul speaking to a church at Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Don't miss this. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's hope. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ is our Passover lamb, or or for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders. Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you. Uh, and it may be more apparent today, but we're just doing what we do every time we gather under your word and we're submitting our heart to your wisdom, Father. I pray that you would help us not to lean on our own understanding, 
but to trust you, Father. Would you remind us uh, that you are just that, our Father. You want to do good to us and for us, God. Help us to trust you. We pray that your word would come forth clearly today and that we would leave as those full of hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, yeah, why don't you take your seats? Can somebody turn the lights on back there? The way that my complexion is set up. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, conflict doesn't ruin relationships. Conflict doesn't ruin relationships. Unaddressed and underaddressed conflict does. There's this story by one of my favorite storytellers, a guy by the name of Matthew Dix. And what he does is he says to a group of folks um, that him and his wife never fight. They never argue. They've never raised their voices or thrown things or said anything that would cause, the, uh, cause one to apologize to the other. Him and his wife never fight. Clearly, he's lying, but he goes and yeah, he shares about this lie. And he says um, that every winter, um, his wife would have him take out the AC units from the top of the house and put them down in the basement. And at springtime, he'd have to take them out and put those up there. It was an agreement that they made when they bought a house that didn't have any AC in it. So one day, she asks him uh, if he would do that. And he says, sweetheart, I'm so tired. And she says, all right, it's fine. And so he says he just sits there and he stews and he starts to think in his head. Well, of course, she would ask me to do, do this. She won't walk up and down the stairs. I grew up in a house without AC. She would be fine. After 10 minutes of stewing, he goes downstairs and he stomps and he gets the AC and he bangs it against the wall and he walks upstairs and his wife says, hey, are you okay? And he says, I'm fine in a way that clearly means that he's not fine. And he bangs things up and he sits down and he's frustrated. A few weeks later, his wife comes and she says, hey, would you cut the grass? And he says, I'm just really tired. I do not want to cut the grass. And she says, all right. So he sits there and he stews and said, of course, she would ask me to cut the grass. And after about 10 minutes of stewing, he gets up and he stomps around angrily and cuts the grass. He doesn't cut it where it leaves those nice little like straight lines at the end. It's zigzagged and he's mad and he comes and she says, are you fine? And he says, I'm fine in a way that clearly shows that he's not fine. And he sits in the house. And as he sits there, he reflects on the fact that um, if I keep going this way, even though I've never said anything hurtful, even though I don't yell or throw things, I'm going to ruin this relationship because I fight with my wife all the time. 
I just don't use words. I bang the AC. I do it all in my head. And he comes to the conclusion, oh, conflict doesn't ruin relationships. Unaddressed or underaddressed conflict does. I think as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to see the same thing as it relates to sin in the life of the church. Sin doesn't ruin churches. Unaddressed and underaddressed sin does. I think we live in a world where, um, or before we go there, I do just want to talk about sin. I think so often, especially in church, we'll use this phrase, and I don't know what your background is, but you may hear sin and you may think just actions or things that are done wrong. You may think that God is a referee that has set rules and sin is stepping out of bounds. But when it comes to sin, I think that the way that the Bible is going to try to help us see what sin is, is sin is this pleasant poison that ruins your soul. So sin or these, is this, these actions, these, this attitude, this disposition that we have to go after things that God has said clearly is out of bounds, but we go after them because there is some pleasantness in it, and we think the pleasantness means that it's good, but it's actually the most pleasant form of poison, and it doesn't kill us immediately, but it just starts to erode our souls. It flies under the radar. It goes unaddressed. When we do see its propensity to ruin things, we're careful and cautious in how we address and talk about it because we know that nobody's perfect, so who am I to bring it up? I'm not trying to judge. And so often in the life of the church, we can let sin go unaddressed and under-addressed. You know, I think in our quest for unity, we've made a grave mistake of assigning these absolute values to unity and division, to togetherness and being apart. We live in a world where it seems like we would like to say unity, togetherness is always good, Division, separation is always bad, and therefore we need to maintain unity and togetherness at all costs, even if it means being silent about something that would rip folks apart. And at the end of the day, I think we've made a mistake because unity and separation are not vices, they are not virtues. They are vehicles meant to get us to some place. And the most important thing about any vehicle is who's driving. What is driving that unity? Unity shouldn't be pursued at all costs. Division shouldn't be avoided at all costs. If a church is ever going to multiply in its effectiveness in the world, It's not going to come about only by addition. 
It's not going to come about only by the size, the number, the attendance of folks in a room filling up and up and up. A large stadium of people gathered under the name of Jesus Christ isn't necessarily an absolute good. Unity isn't the ultimate priority of the church. Where it is, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a lot of unaddressed and underaddressed sin in the life of the church. You're going to find a group of people justifying, we've got this good thing, we've got this big thing, we don't want to mess it up, let's just deal with this stuff quietly. And that pleasant poison can rip through the souls of everybody in the church, regardless of their age. You know, it's interesting that, you know, I spent 16 years as a pastor and I preached this text a whole lot. And every time I preached it, it was in the context of a particular church. And I had my eyes set on things that went on in a particular church These past 14 months of not being a pastor at a particular church, I've spent time at a lot of churches, and I've realized that when you talk about the effectiveness of Christianity in the world, when you talk about the reason for a church existing is to display the greatness of Jesus in a way that people see him and want to come to him for the right reasons, I've seen and I've attended and I've been at a lot of churches that would do a better job for the kingdom of God if they would just close their doors and everybody would go home. The reason why I say that is because the only thing that is worse than no church existing is a bad church existing. Do you know what it does? It causes people to reject the true Jesus for the wrong reasons. People that are desperately in need of not just salvation from their sin, but grace to save them from their shame. And they look, and because they've lived or experienced Churches where there is blatant sin that's unaddressed and underaddressed, they reject Jesus because they view Jesus as somebody that would co-sign or allow that miscarriage of justice to take place. But on the flip side, what you do is you find people can accept Jesus for the wrong reasons. And people want to find themselves in a church because they know If a particular church won't take calling out sin, won't take the justice of the Lord seriously, it becomes a great place to manipulate and use and abuse people. And so you see people that are drawn in for all of the wrong reasons. And all that it does is convince a world that is in desperate need of what the real Jesus provides. that they don't need him and they'd be better off without him. 
Um, I think often, uh, you know, for anybody that knows me, y'all know that I'm a lot more lighthearted than this. Uh, But sometimes as you approach the text, the goal is you got to keep the tone that's here. It's interesting because as you go through 1 Corinthians, if you've been here for the past, what, six weeks that we've gone through it, the message has been unity, unity, unity. The book starts off 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4. Paul's main concern is that there is a church that is divided because people are unifying around all of the wrong things, gifts, their affinity for teachers, preachers, and and Paul's going to continue to say, unity, 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 unity. And by the end of chapter 4, it seems like they get it, and he's like, all right, now that we all got it, somebody's got to go. Now that we all got it, I don't want y'all to confuse unity as the priority of God's church. I think what 1 Corinthians 5 lays out um, is that the purity of the church is the priority of God's church. The purity of the church is the priority of God's church. He's going to call for at least three things, a removal a renewal, and then a reinforcement. A a removal, a renewal, and a reinforcement. The very first thing that he does is he just kind of helps this church see that it's these misplaced priorities. That this church, in a sense, has a bad uh, Google review. All right, so whenever I, whenever... uh, we're getting ready to go out. Me and Chandra were getting ready to go out Friday night of this past week, and I saw some place that I wanted to take her, and so I looked at the Google reviews, um, and the Google reviews were very bad and very detailed. So it's not just one or two folks hating. It is, no, this is overrated, check Reddit, read this, like it's just not good. And it reminds me of the old marketing adage, um, you are not who you say you are, you are who other people say that you are. And I think sometimes that's true when it comes to the church. Look here at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, um, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? The very first thing is you see Paul's not going to mince any words. There is no cliffhanger on how he feels about all of this. By the end of verse 2, he's already telling the church this is the action that should take place. There is a situation. What he says is, look, it's been reported that the thing that people talk about when they talk about y'all's church is not Jesus. The, Paul's like, yo, I can't even 
get away from it. On my Twitter timeline, on my IG, in my email, I'm getting newsletters where people are saying the stuff that is going on here, and I want you to hear this, all right? It may be gossip, but what Paul's saying is, um, but it's not slander. That it may be people that aren't involved there telling business that's not theirs, which is one thing. But what he's saying, no, no, no. Slander is about if it's true or false. And Paul's saying this is true. What he's trying to say here is that in this time, it's not that this guy is with his mom. He's likely with his stepmom or just... And just back in this day, what Paul's trying to bring out here is the there is some guy that is actively involved in this lifestyle. And Paul's like, I'm not even a part of y'all's church, and I know it. So everybody knows it. And what he's saying, and this is your shame, it is the type of sin that people with a looser moral compass look at and say, yuck. It is the type of thing where people that don't even claim to know God or want to do good in the world would look and say, they're wilding. And Paul's rebuke is not just the action. It's the attitude. Every action has at its core an attitude. Paul's saying, this is the situation. And the frustrating thing, Paul's saying, is that y'all should be hunched over in shame and despair, but instead, everybody gives it a shoulder shrug, like nobody's perfect. He's saying, it's the wrong response, and look at the word that he's going to use in verse 2. He says, y'all are arrogant. It's not that you're hard of hearing. It's not that you don't know what God should say. It's not that you don't know God's standard. What he's saying is that y'all are arrogant. Y'all somehow think that you're being more compassionate than God. Y'all somehow are boasting in the fact where, hey, Nah, I mean, we just want to be a place, you know, where everybody can come with, you know, all of their mess, and we're not going to judge you, and we're not going to hold you down. And in an attempt to try to be that, what he's saying is, y'all are actually being harmful. And the reason why I bring that up is because we do live in a world that is constantly going to talk about tolerance in some ways, but we live in a world that is very intolerant. When it comes to some of the measures that God puts in place for our holiness so that we present an accurate picture of him that's attractive. And you live in a world that wants you to apologize for the very hard but good things that God says. And if we're not careful, what we can do is spend our time embarrassed by God's good standard, apologizing for him as if he needs PR and cause people to turn their back on such a hard God and turn and give themselves to us, somebody who can't save, who can't raise the dead, who has never died for anybody's sins. 
God's words may be initially unpleasant, but where they are, we don't apologize for them. We use our energy to lean in and try to understand the good that God wants to do in that. And that's what Paul's going to do here in the rest of the text. This is what I mean. If you're sitting there right now and you feel that your heart or your soul is bristling under the weight of something here in the text where a, a God that loves is saying that a church should exclude somebody or put them out because of things that they've done and you already feel like I don't want any part of that. God, what I'm saying is just stay until the end. Now is a great time to offer a silent prayer and just say, all right, God, I'm going to wait and I just want you to help me see this. When it comes to the purity of the church being the priority of God's church, what I love is that although Paul is going to start here and say that they should be ashamed of themselves, he's not going to harp on that and try to discourage people towards faithfulness. Because nobody is ever discouraged towards being faithful or doing what God has called them to do. Everybody needs to be ushered, shepherded, or encouraged towards faithfulness. And so what Paul's going to do is as he talks about the removal, as he talks about this thing that we've come to know or call church discipline, Paul's going to say, no, no, no. But a removal of any of the sort, it always starts with this. Hope for the straying. Removal is all about hope for the straying. What he's saying is people can do hard things if they're hopeful. Um, a few years ago, my daughter got strep throat for the first time. Um, and then I got strep throat for the first time, or I thought it was the First time I grew up in a Nigerian household, so it was, uh, I may have had it like three or four times, but my parents were just like, yo, drink some ginger ale, all right? So me and her both have strep throat for the first time, and we sit down, and I'm at the doctor, and they say, all right, there's two ways that we can do this. We can give you um, an antibiotic to give to her, but right now, her strep is so se severe that you may do that for 10 days and it may not work. Um, so we can give her a bit of a stronger injection, all right? It's Bicillin, um, it's an antibiotic, but it's so like thick, it's paste-like that the needle is bigger and longer than the shots that she gets. But if you do this, She'll cry. She will scream. She'll look up at you and be mad at you. But after she does all of that, she'll go home and she'll go to bed, and within hours, she'll feel better. And what the doctor was trying to do was to say, um, I'm calling on you to do a very hard thing, Dad, for somebody that you love. Uh, but I think that if I give you this hope of what will transpire at the end, that you would be more than willing to do that hard thing. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 to 5, this is what Paul says. Look, verse 3. Even though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. Paul's saying it is already clear. It's been reported. We are arguing 
gravity, everybody knows that this is wrong. This is like the verdict is not out on this. Verse 4, Paul's going to do this though. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's a few things here. I'm just going to walk through them. The very first thing is this. Notice what Paul does not do. Even as somebody, as an apostle with authority, Paul does not strut into this church with a letter and tell them that they're out. Paul's saying, y'all say y'all are a family. So who really has the authority or the responsibility to do this? Paul's saying, it's y'all. This is a thing that everybody in this building that would raise their hands and say, I am committed to this body. This is my family. This is a real weighty responsibility. When we talk about the weight of what it means to be a part of a church, it is not just greeting people as they come in. It's not just, although it is important, helping to teach and train our kids. It's not just being a part of a small group. It's saying that I want to spend my life preparing other people to meet Jesus one day. So Paul gives this task to the whole church. It's this weighty responsibility. And then Paul's going to say this. There's two things that he's going to bring up. One, gospel unity and two, God's power. So he says this in verse 4. When you are, and, and I love this, assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it reminds us that our unity is about something specific. It's not just unity for unity's sake. We are here for something. We are here for someone, right? It's, it's kind of like a Super Bowl party, right? We had them there. You bring a lot of folks to, to your house. Folks that you like, some folks that you may not know, and you're there and you're unified and assembled for something. But what if somebody comes in, picks up the remote, and starts to change the channel? Everybody jumps and says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. This ain't that kind of a party. This is the Super Bowl party. Everybody knows that we're here for Usher, right? Like, we <laughs> everybody knows that we're here to see that. So we are fine, we are fine with anybody coming in and being a part of this. Just don't change the channel from the main character, from the reason why we're here. We are not here just for each other. We are here because of that. And so Paul's saying, look, when y'all are together and, and assembled and y'all remind one another what you're there for, and then he's also going to say, in the power, with the power of the Lord Jesus. It's not just that we're here for him. We're reminded of that gospel power. Whenever the Bible talks about Jesus and it talks about power, go to Romans 6 and you're going to be reminded that the same power that was in Christ that raised him from the dead lives in us. 
He's talking about this, this resurrection power, this power to take the most hopeless scenarios and bring life and purpose and joy. He's saying when y'all gather, remember that Jesus is not just a spectator. He's not just at the back. He's the reason why we're here. His gospel power is there set on stage. And when we see this take place, when we see somebody in this active, open, Willing, unrepentant sin, indulging on this pleasant poison that will kill their souls. He says this. Hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh in order that their soul would would be saved. Clarify what that means. The so that is the purpose or the goal. The goal is salvation. But what he's saying is In certain cases, the pathway toward salvation is letting somebody have what they want. It is not the church at all condemning anybody. It is a concession. It is saying you are intent on living in such a way that denies the truth of what we all gathered about. And at every turn in the road, as people have come and tried to help you, you're intent on turning your back. So here, we want to give you the gift of desperation in hopes that when things fall apart, which they will, the Lord Jesus would meet you there and we would be ready to accept you back with open arms. Church, I want you to hear this. When we talk about holding people accountable, let's always remember that the purpose of the church is to hold people accountable, not to hold them hostage. And the reason why we can have this hope, the reason why we can do this with courage, is because we believe in the resurrection power of Jesus. We believe that in certain cases, somebody having their way to live like they want, that in that sense, even Satan can be as useful to God as he's always been whenever he tries to oppose God. You go through the Bible, and what you see is in the fall, Satan thought that he had Adam and Eve duped. He thought that he secured their downfall. And in their desperation, while they were still making excuses, God comes and gives them a promise and gives them hope. And in Satan's attempt to make God look like a villain, all he did was provide an opportunity for God to be seen as more loving and forgiving than he could have otherwise. You look at Judges. And you see the way that the people of God had these self-inflicted wounds. They're struggling because of their disobedience. And do you know what God does? God comes to bind up even their self-inflicted wounds. You look at the story of Job and you see a God who has the first and the last word in trial. You look at the story of Jonah and you see somebody running blatantly 
in the opposite direction of what God had called him to do, being thrown overboard and about to drown. He gets swallowed up by a fish. And in chapter 2, Jonah is praying from the belly of the well. And do you know what he's doing? He is thanking God for the uncomfortable mercy of spending three days in a fish's belly because he's saying, even though this mercy is uncomfortable, it is better than the alternative. And what he's saying is this, this act shows that a church really believes in the power of the gospel. For us to realize that we are nobody's savior. And that at certain points, we can't hold people hostage. And so we do this in hope, and we pray that God would save their souls. Um, This is one reason why for anybody that's joined this church or anybody that attempts to join this church, that you'll sit down with the pastors and talk, and all that the pastors want to do is they want to make sure and ensure that everybody that comes to be a, a part of the church, to the best that they can tell, is a Christian. They believe in the good news of the gospel of Jesus. They believe that when it comes to their sin, that it does not need to be unaddressed. But when it comes to their sin, it just needs to be confessed and repented of. And it's only people that have experienced that type of grace from God as their life has hit rock bottom that have the conviction and the courage to lean into God's wisdom in something as hard as this. Paul starts off and he gives hope for the strain. As a church, we, don't, we hold people accountable. We don't hold them hostage. But he doesn't just talk about removal. He spends time and he talks about renewal. I, I think we tend to live in a world where the squeaky wheels get the grease and we only focus on the problems that exist. But notice how he shifts gears here. Verse 6. He's, he's going to go on and say this, look, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? So he tells this church, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, look, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He doesn't just talk about hope for the strain, but he says when a church really does this well, it provides joy for the staying. Joy for the staying. Here's what I mean. In these verses, Paul is going to continually use Passover language or words of cleaning and then this feast. In the Bible, wherever you see these words, feast, the feasts that God gives are celebrations. 
It's a time to be reminded of the great work that God has done in saving sinners and delivering and giving liberation to people who haven't earned it for themselves. So even in the gospel stories before the Passover, that's when Jesus goes in and turns over the tables in the temple. Jesus is going to go to a place where people should experience religious freedom and celebration, and when he sees corruption, he's turning over tables, not so that people are in a bad mood, but so that the people that come that genuinely want to encounter their Lord, they can worship uninhibited. His point here is the biggest danger that we have is in seeing things. It's not that big of a deal. So what he talks about is leaven. And what they would do back in this day is they would use the yeast. And once they baked a fresh dough, they would take this yeast and they would take a small piece and just put that small piece in the new dough. When, when, when you put that small piece in the new dough, it doesn't matter how small it is. What yeast does is it spreads. So the size of it doesn't matter. It's all about the presence of it. So what he's going to say here is, no, 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 look, look, look. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to remove the presence of something that people think is not a big deal in order to ensure that everybody that is around gets to partake and remember the joy that comes from the liberation and being saved from our sins. What he's saying or what he's trying to help us see, y'all, is that value doesn't always come in addition. Sometimes celebration and joy comes in subtraction. We do not hold people hostage to try to get them to love God. Sometimes it's skilled subtraction that has a way of arresting people's attention without holding them hostage. Yeah, it's kind of like this. Um, in the pandemic, uh, my daughter started a rock collection. Um, it was not very good. She was three years old, right? So what she would do is she would just add a bunch of rocks because she thought, ah, oh, the more that I have here the better, right? And she would show them to me. I'm her dad, so I had to lie and say, oh, sweetheart, this is yeah, great, right? Uh, but it was trash. She can be a lot of things. She's going to be a lot of things. A geologist is not one of those things. But it's like this, though. The only way that attention gets held on that is if she holds me hostage. You go to Europe, and you know what you'll see? You'll see people lined up out of the door to see a statue of Michelangelo's David. It's a rock. Why do people pay to go see that? You know why? Because it started off as this unimpressive rock. And the value, the beauty, didn't come in addition. It came in skilled subtraction. Let's just take off these edges that, that don't belong, that don't 
represent the image that I'm trying to see. And we want to carve or craft this beautiful statue so that people outside look and say, that is amazing, and they just sit and they stare. And what Paul is saying is that this is what takes place when the church becomes serious about our role of giving the world a statue or picture of Jesus that is becoming of him. That for those that stay, we are reminded that God forgives the worst of sinners. But we never forget for the worst of sinners to be accepted by God. God forgives them, which means that they have repented, they have turned, they've put their trust in him. And the goal, the goal is not just bad deeds erased. It is not just removing. The goal is renewal. It's bad deeds replaced. It's giving people a reason to rejoice, celebrate. We as a church exist to protect the display of the gospel in the world. And one of the ways that we do that is by taking God's call seriously to prepare each other to meet Jesus. Church discipline is not just about hope for the straying. It's about joy for the remaining. And then lastly, Paul is going to close it out by ensuring that we don't dilute the effectiveness of this unique task that we have. Verses 9 through 14 is all about this at the end, y'all. The purity of God's church is the priority of God's church. Um, Look here at verse 9. Paul is going to say this. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler, do not even eat with such a person. And then he's going to go on to say this. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the people from among you. I love those words, uh, among you, at the end, because it reminds us as a church of our responsibility. Um, a few years ago, me and my wife got our kitchen redone. And as we got it redone, they're like, hey, we're going to replace your floors. So they pull up our floors. After they pull up our floors, they're like, hey, your subflooring is trash. We're actually going to replace that as well. After they pull that up, they say, I do not know how y'all have been standing in this kitchen. These beams are all shot. So we actually have to replace that as well. So they take all this stuff out like to our crawl space. And then what they do is they go back, and he starts to put the beams up in place. 
And he does the work and he says, all right, this is how many beams that you'll need in order to hold the weight of the kitchen or the things that go on in there. As he's putting those beams up, he's calculating the weight that, they, that those beams in the kitchen would need to carry. He is not reinforcing the whole house, all right? His goal is there is a particular room that I need to be sure can stand up under the weight of these beams. These beams are for these rooms. That if I try to stand the whole house up on these beams, they will crumble. At the very end of this, Paul's going to say, especially to those of us who can take God's word and be overzealous with it. Paul's saying, all right, church, no, no, yeah, listen. Um, Y'all are not the moral police of the entire world. You're a compass, yeah, but your job is not to carry the weight of addressing and dealing with what the entire world's behavior says about what they need to. Y'all aren't to spend your time trying to do all of that outside. That when it comes to people that don't make a profession in the Lord Jesus, focusing on their behavior is not the right thing, is not the most productive thing. The problem is not their behavior. Their problem is their savior. Their problem is what they run to for salvation. Their problem is what they put their trust in. And so until we've worked through that, y'all can't try to police what they do, what they say, who they sleep with, how they act, how they spend their money. money. But he says, my instruction is for y'all, for everybody that calls that, that would claim to be a Christian, for everybody that's a part of your church that would leave outside of these walls and tell the rest of the world, if you want to know what Jesus like, is like, take a look at me. What he's saying is the only way that we can ensure individual faithfulness in the world is for us as a church to take this corporate responsibility. I bring this up because I want you to sit here. I do not want you to talk to your neighbor. I want you to look at them right now, and I want you to know that God has put you in this church to be responsible for them, to ensure that whenever they stray, that we call them back because we have something important to do here at the, or in this world, and it's not just to display God to a world that is very neutral in how they view him. We're trying to display a right picture of God because there have been so many bad ones displayed. And this type of faithfulness, I want you to hear this, this type of faithfulness takes a conviction, takes a diligence. But with the conviction and diligence, we can form a beautiful sculpture of what God looks like. Although faithfulness requires diligence to grow, destruction needs nothing but negligence to grow. Destruction needs nothing but a community of people that would say with their mouths, I'm a part of a church 
and would live their lives with zero concern about how their brothers and sisters are representing the Lord Jesus outside of these walls. Church, we are a family. We are a family that God has designed to take care of each other. And I think as we give ourselves to this, we'll find that even as we do this hard work, it provides hope for the strain, joy for those that are staying. I do want to end off with a story. I started with one of unaddressed conflict, and um, Brother, he's here right now. I'm not going to use uh, his name, but I remember in the life of our church, this had to be 12 years ago. He was living with roommates and was responsible for paying the bills or some stuff. Ended up um, stealing roughly $2,000 from his roommates that were here in the bar. He was caught, became very, very clear that what he did was wrong. And to his credit, as it was brought up, he publicly confessed. He publicly made things right. He worked to repair the breach. And do you know what it did? It didn't bring shame to him or shame to anybody else. It reminded everybody that was here, I still have this sin inside of me that I can't shake but I don't have to deal with it by myself. This is the best place on the planet to exist as an imperfect person because when I come forward and say it got the best of me in a moment of lapse of judgment or even in intentional fashion, I know I did what was wrong, but I don't want to live this way what you had was a community of folks that did not look down in shame or judgment, but they said, I know exactly what it's like to be there. Let's lift you up and bring you to a place. And do you know what that does to a community, to a world of people that live as if the only way they can be fully known or the only way that they can be fully accepted or loved is to hide parts of themselves? It shows them, wait a minute, there is one place here on earth where even if I bring all of my failures and flaws to the table, I can still be loved because I've seen it take place. And do you know who that represents? The Lord Jesus. It was what drew people to him. and We've got a great opportunity to do that. Not as sin and conflict goes unaddressed, but as it's rightly addressed in hope, in faith, in the name of our Lord Jesus, as we're reminded of his resurrection power, his ability to take people and situations that are absolutely hopeless and lifeless and breathing new life into it. Let's pray that God would make that true of us as a church. Father, we pray that you would make us those that love you. You would pray, I pray that you would make us those that believe your words, especially in the hard things, that you would make us a 
transparent and open community where we know that acceptance isn't based on our perfection, but it is seen in our honesty and repentance. Pray that you would make us a welcoming community that is an accurate sculpture of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.